welcome to the Prophecy Club. As you know, Leslie and I are going to Malaysia to speak, and in the process, I've tried my best to make a lot of broadcasts in advance, but I just can't make enough of them. I'm going to get some help from David Phillips also, but in the meantime, we're going to have to play some audio of the DVDs. And out of the over 300 DVDs that we've made, I've chosen the ones by Michael Rood because I think that the church mostly needs to learn more about the feasts, and that's probably one of the best ones talking on the feast that I know of. So here's the offer, then I'll explain what the DVDs are. We're offering you six discs valued at $160 for a gift of $40, but the best deal is get six discs and watch them at watchprophecyclub.com for only $10. Yeah, they can watch all six of them for only $10, and of course you can get signed up for watchprophecyclub.com for $20 a month or $200 a year. So here's the scoop on it. We're offering you Prophecy in the Spring and Fall Feast. That's a four-disc set by Michael Rood. We're also offering you Fall Feasts in Prophecy by Doug Hamp. And my DVD, 17 Secrets in the Feast and the Trumpets. Again, six DVD discs valued $160 for a gift of $40. And you order the discs at prophecyclub.com. It's called the Feasts in Prophecy gift offer. However, the best deal is watch all six of them for a gift of $10 at WatchProphecyClub.com. You'll have access to the Fall Feasts offer of four titles immediately at WatchProphecyClub.com. But of course, the best deal is you can watch over 200 titles for a gift of $20 a month recurring or $200 a year recurring, and you can watch all of them anytime you want to, including the new Sevenfold Miracle Crusade, which is not going to be offered on DVD. It's only going to be at WatchProphecyClub.com. So, order the discs at ProphecyClub.com. Watch the 200 titles for $20 a month, $200 a year at WatchProphecyClub.com. Or get the Feasts in Prophecy gift offer at ProphecyClub.com for a gift of $40. Or you can watch all of them, all six of them, for a gift of only $10 at WatchProphecyClub.com. little complicated. Call us, 785-266-1112, and we will explain more if you have other questions. So let me explain what the DVDs are. First of all, in my opinion, I think that probably Michael Rood is one of the best, if not the best, at explaining the feasts. One of the revelations I received, which is in my new book, Secret Door to Understand Bible Prophecy, was that Jesus did not fulfill all of the spring feasts. He was not here. As you recall, he ascended 10 days before Pentecost. The feasts are not days to have a party. They are God's appointment days, meaning that when God does major events, he always does them on his feast days. Most especially, they are a picture of the last seven months before Jesus returns. They lay out the two returns, I said the two returns of Jesus, one on first fruits as a lamb, 50 days later his crowning at the marriage feast, and then his final return on trumpets as the line of the tribe of Judah to burn the tares. Michael Rood probably does one of the best jobs I've ever seen in explaining the feast, which is why I've chosen to play his audio of his DVDs today. Michael tells the story of how Jesus fulfilled the first four feasts at his coming, as I said. I don't believe he did. I think it stopped on first fruits. That's our only difference. But other than that, I think he's right on. And it's very important that you learn all you can about these feasts because they help you to understand Bible prophecy. Then we also are offering Doug Hemp's DVD, The Fall Feasts in Prophecy. He says there are seven feasts of the Lord. 
We know Jesus died on Passover. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he was in the tomb. On first fruits, he arose. Fifty days later, on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. He'll also explain the parable of the fig tree in Matthew 24 and demonstrates that we are living at the end of the generation, which will see the budding of the fig tree. Then my DVD is part of the offer, 17 Secrets in the Feasts and the Trumpets. This recording contains the top six revelations I received from memorizing the book of Revelation. In the order of importance, they are the next anointing of Jesus, who are the two witnesses, is not Enoch and Elijah, what is the morning star, seven amazing facts about the 144,000, secrets in the seven feasts and trumpets, who appears before the great white throne, and who appears for the Jesuit seat of Christ, the kings and priests in New Jerusalem, what are and who sits on the other thrones, and what are the other books. So that's four titles, six discs, for a value of $160 at prophecyclub.com for a gift of $40 at watchprophecyclub.com for a gift of $10. But the best deal is just join Watch Prophecy Club. 20 bucks a month, $200 a year. You can watch now over 200, almost 300 titles. Now let's go listen to Michael Rood in Prophecies in the Spring Feasts of the Lord. The, the rabbis understood that the Son of Righteousness was speaking of the Messiah. And the rabbis taught that just as the Son was created on the fourth day, so the Messiah will come on the fourth day, or in the fourth millennium. And, in fact, it was Tishri 15 of 3999, with less than 18 months left of the fourth millennium, and that is the date on which Yahshua of Nazareth was born, in the very millennium which he was expected to arrive. Now, it was at the very end of that millennium, which, uh, which uh, shows us something very important, that God is not only omniscient, but God is very slow. And he waits right until the end before the deliverer comes and before deliverance comes. And we see that so many times in our own lives. But just as the, the rabbis had taught that the Son of Righteousness will come on the fourth day, the Messiah will come on the fourth day, and that the Messiah will arise with healing in his tzitzit in the corner of his garment, we see that the Gospels now give us the picture of when this actually takes place as far as how that particular prophecy was fulfilled. In fact, it was a time in which Jarius, his daughter, was ill. Uh, Jarius lived in one of the small villages, and he had called for Joshua to come and to pray and minister and heal his daughter. Now, outside of that village, a woman was living who was actually once a resident of that town, but now she was living outside of the village because she had an issue of blood for which she could not get healed. Now, according to God's Torah, if a person keeps the commandments of God, as he says, if you keep my commandments, none of the diseases of the Gentiles will come upon you. But if through someone's disobedience, their contamination with, uh, with dead bodies or, or whatever reason, they contract one of the diseases of the Gentiles, then they are to live outside of the household of faith until they are cleansed, until they're healed, because God did not want all of his people contaminated. And because of the disobedience of one person, he did not want all of the household of faith disobedient, uh, or excuse me, diseased, sick, and dying. And so God set up laws of quarantine that if you keep these laws of quarantine, then that isolates the disease from the household of faith. Now, this woman who had this issue of blood, it was there for 12 years. It says that she sold everything that she owned. 
the house, the chariot, everything was gone. And she spent it all on physicians. For 12 years, she had this disease and could not get healed. She had to live outside of town. And her friends and family would, every day, would bring food out to her. They'd take it outside of town, and they would put the basket out by a rock, and they would put the food down on, on that rock, and then she would come out after they left, and then she would get the food and stay away from them. And so for 12 years, she's away from her friends. She's away from her family. And she is desperate. She's heartbroken. She's getting to be an old woman now, and she has no hope of ever getting healed. But she has heard, because her friends and her family come out, and they talk about this rabbi that has been teaching around the different synagogues in the area, and that he is going to come into town because everyone has heard how ill Jairus' daughter is. And so when this rabbi is coming into town, Yahshua is coming in, then there is a whole group of people following him that had come from the previous uh, town in which he was teaching the synagogue. And as he's coming into town, then the entire city then flocks out to the gates of the city and makes a pathway for him. And all the, the, the people are there. There is a throng at the gate of the city, and they are so excited that he's coming because this they have heard that as he teaches in the synagogue is that people are getting healed, that he's interpreting the Torah, and, and there's a fame that goes out about him among all the people around. And so these people are so excited about hearing. And this woman knows the prophets. She has studied the scriptures. She has been raised with the, the prophets in, in the Torah all of her life. And as she's outside the city, she realizes that if this is the Messiah... This is her chance. Because she knows that when the true Messiah comes, that he will come with healing in his tzitzit, in the corner of his garment. And so, while everyone's attention is diverted, there is a throng, and everyone's attention is on Yahshua as he comes into town. Then, she comes from the other side of town, in back of everyone. And very quietly, she comes in, she covers herself up, and then gets up behind the crowd. And then when she approaches the crowd, she then gets on her hands and knees and she crawls up through that crowd and gets right to the place where Yahshua is going to be walking past because they've made an opening in the path there. And as he walks by, then she reaches out through the crowd and grabs a hold of the tzitzit right down on his calf on the corner of his garment and she grabs a hold of that tzitzit and as it then, he walks by and it then slips out of her hands, he stops immediately and said, who touched me? And everyone froze, and the disciples said, well, like everyone is touching you, Lord, this is a throng. You've seen this before. What's the problem here? And he said, no. I felt dunamis. I felt virtue go out of me. I felt power go out of me. And when he turned, and he looked, and his eyes engaged her eyes, and then everyone saw who he was looking at, right then they scattered like flies immediately because they realized that she had just contaminated every one of them. That here, this Joshua was coming into town. He was going to come in and teach. He was coming in to heal. And now she has contaminated them and they can't be in the presence of other people until after sundown because now they're unclean and they have to mikvah and they have to separate themselves because they don't want to pass it on among the other people. They are immediately hostile. And he said, 
who touched me, when they scattered, she knew that if this is not the Messiah, she, this unclean woman, has just deliberately reached out and she has touched the hem of a kosher rabbi. She has deliberately defiled someone and she can be stoned on the spot. The people know it. She knows it. Yahshua knows it. She's a dead woman. And when he said, who touched me? She didn't deny it. She said, I did, Lord. And he said, your faith has made you whole. She knew that if he is not the Messiah, she is dead. But if he is, she will be healed. And every one of us are in the same place. If Yahshua of Nazareth is not the Messiah, then we are still dead. We cannot come into the presence of a righteous and a holy God, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Until we have been atoned for, there is no remission of sin. And if he is not the Messiah, then God has made no provision for the Gentiles. And he's made no provision for Israel because the temple was destroyed nearly 2,000 years ago, and the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and rams, which we know is not sufficient to take away sin. It was a shadow picture of that sacrifice and that atonement that would be necessary. You and I are in the same place. He is the Messiah. He did pay for our sin. And we have to just grab a hold of the tzitzit on the corner of that garment and say, you are Messiah. We believe, and by faith, we take a hold of the hem of his garment and say, you are Messiah, and if you're not, we'll die. But he is, and through him, we have our life. And that record of that woman who reached out and grabbed the hem of his garment is the testimony that made eunuchs. Because when they were going to be trained in all the wisdom of the Chaldeans, now we are going to have the major brain trust on planet Earth. We've got four Einsteins that are sitting in the city of Babylon right now. And not only are they extremely intelligent, but they are going to be trained in all the wisdom of the Chaldeans and they do not want them to be able to have any offspring that will be able to come back and take vengeance or retaliate against those men who have incarcerated them. And so now all their attention is to serve the Babylonian Empire, the Chaldean Empire. So it was that Daniel and his companions were not only brilliant men, not only schooled in all of the, the wisdom of Israel, but now Daniel receives revelation from God and he is able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream that God gives to Nebuchadnezzar. Why does God give it to Nebuchadnezzar and now Daniel interprets it? Because Daniel, when he interprets it, he is made the president of Babylon immediately under Nebuchadnezzar. He is made a very, very wealthy young man and he has the authority right underneath Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And he is put in charge of all the Chaldean astronomers whom he had saved their lives because Nebuchadnezzar had told the Arioch, the captain, the host of the army, to go out and kill all the Chaldean astronomers because they really can't foretell the future. And so after Nebuchadnezzar said that we're cutting the budget and we're killing all of them, then Daniel came up with the interpretation. It saved all their lives. And so he was responsible for all the Chaldean astronomers for the next 60 years. The, many of the Chaldean astronomers were young Jewish men that were raised in this knowledge. And they stayed behind in Babylon for, for hundreds of years.
In fact, when they came back from the Babylonian captivity, there were hundreds of thousands of Jews that had not returned to Israel. Many of them were astronomers in the land of Babylon. Now, we see that uh, Daniel was the president of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, then under Belshazzar, and then under Darius the Mede. Each time he was made extremely wealthy. And we see that throughout his life he is given revelation. He knows when the Messiah is going to be born, and there are also things that he is told to seal up and to not write because they are not for the general dissemination to the public. But Daniel, before he died, Daniel being a eunuch, extremely wealthy, at the end of his life, now gives his instructions to the Chaldean astronomers. Daniel, who has no offspring to whom he would pass down his treasure, now puts it in the hands of those Jewish Chaldean astronomers and said, when you see this sign in the heavens, I want you to take my treasure and lay it at the feet of my Lord. For 500 years, those Chaldean astronomers watched the heavens. And when they saw that sign, well, the announcement of the birth of the righteous king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, they took Daniel's treasure and they moved in a caravan. And from Babylon, it took them months to get all the way to Jerusalem. And when they got there, they came to the capital of the land and they went in and said, we have come to worship he who was born king of the Jews. Herod was shaken by this. He called them in privately and inquired about what they had seen and what the, the time frame was. And when he had done that, he then called the scribes there in Jerusalem, the Torah teachers, and said, where will the Messiah be born? And they said, he'll be born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread, just on the next hillside away from Jerusalem. If you're on the Temple Mount, you look up at the next hillside to the south, there's Bethlehem. And then Herod sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, when you find the child, tell me, and so that I can go worship him as well. When they got out to Bethlehem, then the Chaldean astronomers were warned of the Lord in a vision. And the angel said, depart a different way, that Herod will attempt to kill the child. And so they left in another direction. But they laid the feet uh, at the feet of the Lord at the feet of the Messiah, Daniel's treasure, that night. Now, in that night, that is when Joseph was warned by an angel and said that Herod was going to attempt to kill the child and that he was to flee into Egypt. Now, we know that months earlier, on the 40th day, when it came the time when they were to go to the temple and redeem the child and present an offering before the Lord, the Torah says that you are to present and offer a male lamb of the first year. And that was the price of the redemption of the firstborn male child. But they didn't do that. They offered two pigeons. Why? Because the Torah says if you can't afford a lamb, which are very plentiful, but if you can't afford it, you can bring two young pigeons. Miriam and Yosef couldn't afford even a lamb to redeem the Son of God as an offering for the awesome blessing that they have of raising the Son of God in their care. They can't afford it. But the very night that the angel tells them that they need to flee into Egypt, a treasure arrived that had taken 500 years to get there. The very night that they needed to flee, they had a treasure that they could then, at that very moment, pick up. They could move into Egypt. They could stay there. Now they could come back into the, their own land. They could then 
set up housekeeping up in Nazareth because God's provision had been there, but it took 500 years to get there. That is how our God works. At the last minute, he comes through with the deliverance. And if we are doing what he is asking us to do, and if we are in his will, then we don't have to worry about the provision. Because if it has taken 500 years to set it aside, it will have been done 500 years ago so that you will have what you need for this time. This is how our God works, and this is how we are to walk in this time. In everything, give thanks, because God's provision is there each step of the way. In Genesis 1.14, we go back, And God said, Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. God's reckoning of time is governed by the movement of the heavenly bodies. And in order to understand God's reckoning of time, now we go to the biblical Hebrew calendar. And now this is not the modern Jewish calendar. The modern Jewish calendar is based on the astronomical calculations of Rabbi Hillel II in the 4th century. And even though those calculations were very accurate at the time, they were not accurate enough so that they would remain on track over the 1600 years that it has been in use. So most of the time we're celebrating the feast on the wrong day according to God's original reckoning of time. Now that we're back in the land, however, we can go back to God's original reckoning of time, and I personally believe that God runs the universe on his calendar, whether or not we understand or even recognize God's calendar. I believe that God's feast days will be fulfilled according to his prophetic calendar and not according to any of our own misunderstanding. And so it is this biblical Hebrew calendar that I'm going to begin to explain so that you understand how these charts work and to understand the calendar. And we see that in this biblical Hebrew calendar, right up at the top, we're going to take you to the beginning of the year. And first of all, to understand God's reckoning as it's laid out right in the book of Genesis, uh, in the first chapter we see... When do days begin according to God's reckoning of time? Days begin when the sun sets, at sunset. Doesn't matter what time it is because every day it's different. It's different in Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. It's whenever the sun set, that is when the day begins. When do weeks begin? Weeks begin at sunset at the end of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Friday evening when the sun goes down until Saturday evening when the sun goes down. As the sun sets at the end of the Shabbat, at the end of Sabbath, that is the first day of the week. And that's why when we read in the book of the Acts of the Jewish Apostles, how that the disciples got together early on the first day of the week to break bread, that Shaul began teaching and he taught late into the night until this young man fell out of the window. They ran out there. He was dead. They prayed for him, he was raised from the dead, and then everyone was so pumped up then, nobody could go to sleep all night long. And so when the sun came up, Shaul took off with his entourage and took off on their next journey, and everyone else went to work. See, in the Western Gentile Christian world, when people read early the first day of the week, they got together to break bread, they immediately think they got up real early on Sunday morning and had some kind of special brunch. Only in your Western Gentile mind, what they were doing was the third meal of Shabbat, the meal at the end of the Sabbath, in which after having a whole day of resting in the Sabbath and studying the Scriptures and being refueled by God and eating of the bread of life, 
then at the end of the day, what we do is uh, still this very day in the city of Jerusalem, then we leave our homes, we get together in larger groups around the table, everyone brings food. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Everyone brings food together, everyone eats together, and there everyone shares with each other. Everyone has a psalm, a hymn, a doctrine, a revelation. Look what the Lord showed me. And they minister to each other, and we drag that meal out until the wee hours of the morning sometimes. Nobody wants it to end. The Sabbath is such a blessing that God gave to us right in the very beginning. In Genesis, he set it apart, he sanctified it, he made it holy, and he said, keep it holy. And when that uh, culture does this, in which everyone then participates, and they get refueled, and they read the scripture, then when they get together, they've got something to share. They're not coming together as a bunch of needy basket cases in which you have to have a paid professional attempt to raise you from the dead one hour a week. There's no minister that gets paid enough to raise the dead one hour a week or is really that good at it because everyone is supposed to minister to each other. And so we see in the first century believers getting together, that they got together, they broke bread, and they just shared late into the middle of the night until someone falls out the window and is taken up dead. I believe that's why windows were created, to keep kids from falling out late at the uh, early, the first day of the week in the, in the, the middle of the night. So there it is, to where we have to have a perspective of the first century church, understanding these are Jews that are getting together like they have been for all these decades and doing the very same things. And we see that it's such a healthy thing that all the synagogues started in the home. The early believers all got together in the home. It was Constantine that started building cathedrals, setting theater style, and having a paid professional up front. So that's whenever the form does not allow the body of believers to function with everyone as a minister, then the form is wrong. Now, this is a good form here tonight to disseminate a lot of information. But this is not how the assembly operates and ministers to, to each other. I can minister this way, but it has to be a, 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 a sharing, a full sharing of everyone. Everyone ministering to each other, everyone growing up in the fullness and stature of the Messiah. And that's what the goal is. Enough preaching, let's get back to the calendar. When do months begin, according to God's reckoning of time? Months begin when the first sliver of the new moon appears. And there is a mikra or a rehearsal that is done so that you know how that is established. But basically, when the first sliver of the new moon appears, that's the first day of the month. Then the moon waxes full about mid-month, then it wanes to where there is no moon, and then when the first sliver of the next new moon appears... I'm going to interrupt the broadcast right there. In 2017, I memorized the book of Revelation just as a simple project. Surprisingly, I began to receive information on 30 revelations and two visions beyond what is found in the Bible. God showed me a secret door, which is based upon a single word found in Revelation and Leviticus, linking the feasts to the prophecies. When linked, a person enters into an understanding of Bible prophecy not previously known. Even though I've been in the world of Bible prophecy for 40 years, frankly, I did not know anything of what is in this book. One prophetic word described it this way. There is a lock that I have put over a word in the book of Revelation that I'm going to open to you. 
It will turn so many books written on the end time message into obsolete books. That's this book. Topics are Jesus returns on what feast? The secret of the feasts. Who are the two witnesses? What is the morning star? The judgment seat explained. The great white throne explained. The nations explained. What is the shout? And the parables explained. Seals, trumpets, and vials go in what order? Two amazing prophecy charts on the back flap, 12 inches by 9 inches. Imagine a book on prophecy that brings a fresh, new, accurate perspective. I don't want you to get one book for $20. I want you to get five books for $30 or 10 for 55 It's called The Secret Door to Understand Bible Prophecy. Available at prophecyclub.com. The Secret Door to Understand Bible Prophecy. One for 20 No, 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 don't do that. You want to get five for 30 or the best deal, 10 for 55 Prophecyclub.com. Each single Prophecy Club DVD is a gift of $30. In that you know the internet is going away one day, it is a good idea to actually have the disc. However, at WatchProphecyClub.com you can have instant access to over 200 titles on a recurring monthly subscription of $20 or yearly for $200 at WatchProphecyClub.com. That's $6,000 worth of information at WatchProphecyClub.com. That's WatchProphecyClub.com. What a deal.